So glad you're here. My name is Kyle, and uh, let me just again welcome you to Uplift. Let me welcome those of you watching on Sunday to The Conversation. And if you're listening on our podcast, Anchor Point, let me welcome you uh, to there as well, to that platform. We're in a series. We're actually finishing our series over the Gospel of John. In this message, the, the series has been called That You May Believe, and it's been just a short series, just a few weeks over uh, what I think is the most unique of the four Gospels. And it's inspired by uh, one of John's final sentences in the Gospel. We've read this every week. We're going to read it again. It's from John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. It's in your order of worship, and it's on our screen. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love that the stated purpose of this gospel is for you to believe, for you to believe. So over the course of the past few weeks, for that stated purpose, we've looked at the thematic movements of this gospel. We've not taken chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We just kind of looked at the themes. It's been a great journey. Our previous message looked at the theme of Jesus's identity in this gospel. And this message is going to look at the theme of replacement. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. I think I've already said this, but this is the final message of this series. Next week, we're going to begin a new series. Let me just kind of give a promo for this. It's a four-week series called all things new. You know, our, our God really likes to do new things. And uh, this series, hopefully, is going to be a fresh word in your life that new things are coming for you, that better things are coming for you. So I hope to see you back here at Uplift or the Conversation or Anchor Point uh, the next week. Let's jump right in. Have you heard of Chat GPT? You heard of this? Well, if not, I'm going to give you a definition. It's by the tech website, ZDNet.com. ChatGPT is defined like this. It's defined as a natural language processing tool driven by AI technology, artificial intelligence, that allows you to have a human-like conversation and much more with a chatbot. The language model, it can answer questions and assist you with tasks such as composing emails and essays and code. Now, ChatGPT, if you've never heard of this, it was created by a research company called OpenAI. And you can use ChatGPT for free. The same company has also created an application called DAL-E2, or DAL-E2, which is an artificial intelligence art generator. Now, I've played around with ChatGPT. I got an account. And you know what? The first thing I did, I asked it to write a sermon. Not this one, but I did, and it wrote one. Pretty interesting. And then I thought, and apolog- I'm going to have to apologize for the way my brain works, but I thought, let's just do the most random thing in the world. So I asked for it to develop a website code for a pizza delivery website restaurant. I love pizza. Maybe that's why. I thought I could throw it off. I didn't. It spit it out. It wrote it. At least I think it did. I don't know website code, but I assume it was right. Chat GPT is the fastest growing web application app of all time. Over 100 million users just two months after it's launched. The thing is about Chat GPT 
is this really good at what it does? It's really good. In fact, you, you feel like you're talking to somebody, even though you're not. You feel like it. It's so good that even Elon Musk, the wealthiest man in the world, tech entrepreneur, he called it scary good. Here's his quote, we're not far from dangerously, use that word, dangerously strong artificial intelligence. In fact, we may already be seeing the power of AI. The global executive coaching firm, it's a firm called Challenger Grain Christmas, it's the name of the firm, asked ChatGPT, actually asked how many workers it expects to replace. What an interesting question. So ChatGPT replied with this answer, 4.8 million American jobs. Now, for reference, I asked it the same question. It was way more diplomatic. So this must have been early on in its development. Goldman Sachs, the global investment bank, believes that 18% of jobs globally, that's about 300 million full-time jobs, could be replaced by artificial intelligence technology such as ChatGPT. And according to a recent survey, one-third of workers are worried that their roles could be replaced by this technology. Now, the idea is that ChatGPT can eliminate some redundancy and increase efficiency, and it might be right about that. Not all jobs require high emotional intelligence, so artificial intelligence can suffice. But the flip side is that new jobs will be created as AIs even further developed. <clears throat> Sometimes, though, replacements aren't better. They're just not that good. And sometimes they're not even the same. So I got a clip from a famous movie I want to show you of maybe the most famous replacement that didn't go quite right. Let's watch this. this, right? Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. When I was reading through John chapter 2, I'm sorry again, this is the way my mind works, I thought of this scene in this movie. Remember he takes the idol and he replaces it with the bag of sand and then he runs out of the temple and a door closes, he barely misses it and then a boulder comes and he's chased out of the temple. It didn't go quite right. He didn't get the, he didn't get the replacement Quite right. I remember as a kid watching that thinking, what's going to happen? And of course, in my mind, it wasn't Indiana Jones, it was Han Solo, right? And Han Solo didn't do anything wrong, and of course, that was wrong. The replacement didn't go quite right. It's important, though, really, that when something is replaced, when something is replaced, or it needs to be replaced, that it's replaced with something better. 
Because sometimes things are broken. And when they're broken, they're meant, or even they need to be replaced. Broken things and broken systems, which is why I find Jesus' interaction and actions in John chapter 2 so compelling. Because what he does is he offers a replacement to a broken system for people who deny that the system is even broken. So let's read this. This is from John chapter 2. Now, this is a rather long passage. It's from verses 13 through 22, 21 or 22. We're going to read all of it. It's on your order of worship. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal, or your house will consume me. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus begins the process right here of replacing a very broken system. It was a system that controlled access to God. An entire people group believed that God could only be approached through a labyrinth of rituals and people. And this system was enveloped in abuse, and Jesus knew that it needed to go. That's where we are. He needed to be replaced. So here's what he did. So we're going to walk through his process of replacing this broken system. Three things. The first thing is that he exposes the problem here. In John chapter 2, he exposes the problem. Now, we're going to talk about this by really focusing on one particular word from this text, and it's the word zeal. What what an absolutely delicious word here. Jesus' disciples remembered this event later, this event where Jesus stormed the Jerusalem temple, and they could only think of one word to describe Jesus' actions, and it was the word zeal. Look in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, now this word in the original language of John's gospel is the Greek word zelos, Z-E-L-O-S. And that is from the root Greek word zeo. Now, I'm telling you that because in order to properly understand Jesus's emotional state here, you kind of have to know what this word means because zeo literally, It literally means to boil with heat. In other words, 
Jesus was on fire. He was lit, as the kids say. His anger and his rage made his adrenaline rush. His jaw, his jaw tightened, his joints ached. That hormone, it sent, it sent more blood to his brain and his muscles. It elevated his blood sugar to give him some immediate energy. His, his pupils grew large and sweat formed across his brow. That's what zeal, that's what he's, that's what's happening. But what's amazing about Jesus is that even in this emotional state, he never loses control. He had the presence of mind to make a whip, right? And he, and he, and, and then he, he, he ordered, he, he told the people to just carry the birds out in their cages, right? This is rage under control. He's zealous. He's on fire. Now, this is the Passover where this happens. Historical estimates say that at the Passover, the city of Jerusalem could swell to about 300,000 people in a city designed to hold only about 30,000, 10 times its normal population. Those 300,000 people required the slaughter of 30,000 Passover lambs. So in the Passover, vendors filled the temple and they sold animals to the thousands of religious pilgrims for sacrifice. And money changers during the Passover, they filled the temple. So hundreds of thousands of pilgrims could exchange their money for local currency and even to pay the required temple tax, by the way, which generated an immense amount of money for Jerusalem. Later, Roman administrators would confiscate this tax, and it's found to be, in today's money, worth over $2 million, an unimaginable amount of money for a first century Jerusalem citizen just to operate the building. $2 million. This was big business. And it was big business that needed to be protected. But what Jesus does here is he sees through this business. Now, on the surface, this business operated as a helpful service. People came to sacrifice. They needed their money exchanged for local currency. But what Jesus saw was the greed and the extortion beneath this helpful service. He saw the problem. This system was the ultimate grift. It burdened the poor with inflated prices and inflated exchange rates. In essence, charging people money so they could access God. And Jesus boiled with rage because of this. It was a zeal that consumed him. Literally, the statement here about zeal consuming him or in this process, it's actually a statement about his death, about the moment that his zeal actually did consume him, just like the sacrifices were consumed in the temple. The choice of words here, it's on purpose. Jesus will be consumed, but we need to note that he exposed the problem. People should not be impeded in their worship and their adoration and their prayer to God. And Jesus saw through that and exposed it. Here's the second thing he did. He provokes. Jesus provokes you. His actions provoke those in charge. This is how we know. Look at the response of the Jewish religious leaders after Jesus exposed their grip. One verse, John chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews, that's a little phrase for the religious leaders here. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, this question 
in John only comes to Jesus because of his actions. He didn't say anything except direction about where the birds should be taken. That's all he said. So whatever we really kind of think about the Jerusalem leaders and the Jewish leaders, they had a lot to protect, but really their question betrayed their motives. This question was evidence of Jesus's provocation. Jesus, his actions pushed this question out of them. Income and wealth based upon greed needed to be protected. And the religious leaders here, they saw themselves as the protectors of this temple and their grift, their extortion. They knew this place was special and they used its sacredness to insulate their extortion. Now, to give you a sense of this, we often talk about the temple, and you've probably seen pictures, but I want to read to you directly from God's own mouth how sacred this temple really was. Now, this is in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Now, this is the Lord's response to King Solomon after Solomon prayed for the temple, the first temple, to be consecrated. Look at how the Lord answered Solomon's prayer. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. That's pretty special. Those are special words from the Lord. The religious leaders knew this. Generations of sacredness here. And in chapter 2, they prayed on the week with this temple, this symbol of God's faithfulness. And their question, their question here betrayed them. And it looks like a seemingly innocuous question. But here's how we know it betrayed them. They asked for a sign. That's what they asked for. They asked for proof that Jesus had the authority to disrupt something that, let's be honest, maybe in a few hours would be fixed, right? Business would ultimately continue in this place. Jesus had no army in Jerusalem. He was one man in a city of 300,000 people. His flex is going to be pretty quickly undone. They know this. The religious leaders, they didn't need to arrest Jesus. They just needed to discredit him. And they thought that their question to him would do just that because, and this is why, this is a big one, because their question deflected their greed and their grift to Jesus and his outrageous actions. Their question was the ultimate move in a cancel culture. They made themselves victims here. That's what they did with this question. Show us a sign. Show us a sign of your authority. Prove yourself. If you can't, you're the guilty. We're just, we're providing an honest service for these travelers. There's nothing written anywhere that we can't do this. And you're disrupting this. You're making this hard for us. You see what, see where this is going? They 
were the perpetrators of extortion. They were the ones who decided who could worship and how much it would cost. And for good reason, they wanted Jesus to be the bad guy. But Jesus' action in the temple, exposing this very broken system, it fleshed out the problem makers. Because, and we've said this in here, he's controversial. Jesus is controversial. He's scandalous. He's provocative. But he's also solution-oriented. And here's the third thing. Jesus replaces. Jesus replaces. I want you to listen to Jesus' response and then John's commentary to this question. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, in fact, with Jesus' answer here, he just continues to expose them. The Greek language here is a bit more forceful than our English translations indicate. Jesus' response is more like, keep doing what you're doing, and you'll destroy the temple. Almost like what your mom would say to you. Keep this up. Keep this up. This is what's going to happen. Jesus knew, like a good mom, he knew full well that this behavior is not going to stop. He knew it. So what Jesus did is he offered a replacement. He would replace a building that took half a century to build with a body, a dead body, that could be raised and resurrected in just three days. Now, the key word here in this text is the word body. It's Jesus' physical body. His human body was the place. It is the place where God would dwell and what would become the true temple, the only center of worship. Jesus is the replacement for this broken system. In fact, John shows us this pretty often in this gospel. And I've got a screen and I've got some uh, listing of this. We're going to run through these. I encourage you to write these down if you want to read about this later. This is a little bit of theology for you from John to show you exactly what John was doing, what he did when he wrote this go- genius writing, when he wrote it. He's telling us He's telegraphing to us who Jesus is. In John chapter 4, Jesus replaces the mountains and the buildings of worship. He's the only space where worship can happen. No no temple is needed, no sacred geographical location. He's the temple. He's the space. In John chapter 5, and on the Sabbath, Jesus reveals himself as the authority over life and judgment, things that God alone was believed to maintain, especially on the Sabbath. So in John chapter 5, Jesus replaces the law. He's the law. In John chapter 6, and during Passover again, Jesus reveals himself as the true bread from heaven given by the same God who gave manna to Israel. He replaces the manna. He's the bread of life. In John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus revealed himself as living water, and as the light of God during the water-pouring ceremony and the lighting of the great candelabra at the Feast of Tabernacles, he replaces those symbols. He, again, is the life. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is accused of blasphemy, only to respond that he is consecrated by the Father. He's using a word, language, meant for the temple. Again, he's, he is replacing 
the temple. He's the temple. And here's, here's the thing. He's still all of those things. Jesus can, for you and for me, replace the broken, broken systems with which we surround ourselves. Systems and behaviors and addictions that you think elevate your self-worth and prove to yourself and to others that matter. The good news of Jesus is that you already matter. The zeal of Jesus to destroy and replace that drive to find purpose within yourself and your effort, he's replaced that drive with himself. He's still the space through whom you worship the Father. He's still the law. He's still the bread of life. He's still the living water. And what he does is he asks us to believe this, as does his servant John, who wrote these words again, and maybe for the last time from John chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This this story from John chapter 2, like all these other things, it was written for you to believe. And by believing to have life, there's nothing that stands between you and God because of Jesus. Nothing. There's no sacrifice you need to make. You don't need a temple experience that extorts you. You don't have to manipulate a system or look for loopholes. God, in Jesus' name, is yours for the having. He empowers you to live a life of mercy and grace and healing. He forgives your sin, and he gives rest to your soul. And what he's asking through his servant John is for you to believe. It's for you to believe it. Amen and amen.